Hi there, listener. I'm Ian Willoughby, and this is episode 86 of Prague Talk, a podcast from Radio Prague International. In this edition, our guest is Petr Kratokvil from Prague's Institute of International Relations. He recently wrote a paper with his colleague Mila O'Sullivan saying that Russia's war on Ukraine is novel in that it's also a fight against gender and sexual equalities. The authors of the fascinating study also say that the Putin regime is presenting itself at home and abroad as a defender of traditional values against the decadent West. It really is food for thought, so I hope you enjoy my talk now with Petr Kratokvil in this edition of Prague Talk. What role are ideas about gender playing in the way that Russia is conducting or presenting its war on Ukraine? That was in fact the starting point of our research. We were puzzled and and amazed by the insistence of Russian leaders, policymakers, even speakers of ministries such as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs about how often they mentioned gender and especially when speaking about the difference between Russia and and the West in general and that started long before the war. But then just after the invasion it became a flood so obviously that seemed to be one of the central justifications for the war. Perhaps uh, you remember that when uh, Patriarch Kirill started talking about the invasion, he said that the litmus test by which we can tell on which side, good or evil, which country stands, the answer is whether it allows gay prides. So this whole cluster, it's not only gender, men and women, but the whole cluster surrounding the questions about sexuality, gender relations, gender fluidity, all these questions seem absolutely central for Russia in terms of justification of the war. Some listeners or readers may immediately be thinking, but Ukraine was not known as some bastion of uh, liberty and rights for minorities, sexual minorities. That's true. That's true. And that, that makes it even more fascinating that you know, you you might argue that this argument is as nonsensical as arguing that there is a Nazi junta ruling in Kiev. But still, it works. In the Russian space, it works. And what is interesting, it doesn't only work internally. So you can see that President Putin or um, Foreign Minister Lavrov do not only employ this language when speaking to the domestic audience, but also internationally. And our argument in our study is that this is also intentional, that there is a strategy of garnering support from some, quite a few countries around the world, which somehow are unhappy with the liberal hegemony and speaking negatively or critically about gender equality and LGBT rights is a strategy of getting that support. And is the way that Russia presents itself as a defender of traditional values, in quotation marks, natural gender identities, again, in quotation marks, is that possibly a reason why Russia evidently has support in, for example, some right-wing circles in America? Absolutely, absolutely. And not only there, it's in the in, it's obviously in the United States, but it's in many radical far-right or populist parties across Europe. 
But importantly, that is only one part of the strategy. What we see is that that it's also financial connections. Uh, many have been uncovered, the relations to the National Front previously in France, the relations to some, interestingly, even in countries that are radically, uh, you might say, anti-Russian or anti-Putin, such as Poland, you see some connections there between these types of organizations. So obviously, there is a well-thought strategy that is not only rhetorics, it's also financial and political connections beneath that. So it's basically part of their overall information war against the West, against us. Exactly. But I would even argue that it's even more than that, because it's really the central element in the war and has become. And, and again, it you can see it in all the phases, even the way soldiers are female soldiers are treated or the, how news are presented on uh, Russian TV, how uh, the female refugees from Ukraine become women again only after coming to Russia, you know, so they can go to a hairdresser. And then there is a report about the women saying how happy they are, that they feel womanly again. And then you have the comparison with the captured Ukrainian soldiers, female soldiers, who, whose hair is cut off, right? So, or cut short. So you have this kind of strategy that permeates the whole, not only the justification, but the whole practice of war. Well, the Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson, Zakharova, she speaks about trans people a lot and uh, what she calls confused gender order in the West. She says the West is perverse and so on. Is this the aim of the Kremlin to target trans rights and trans issues in particular? Because obviously that's a very divisive, explosive issue, if not maybe the most explosive issue in the West at present. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think that is also part of the strategy. I don't, don't, don't want to overplay the strategy, right? Because there are some elements that are random and that are chosen randomly. But still, it, I think it's a strategy that domestically, it's more when speaking to the Russian audience, it's more about gay rights, because that is the, the visible issue that everybody understands in Russia. Whereas in many Western countries, attacking gays doesn't really work that well anymore. So uh, the focus shifts then to trans people and their rights. But also, you know, what is what is quite interesting is that traditionally, in, if you look at other wars, because this gender dimension has been present in all the wars in Yugoslavia and in, in civil wars in Africa. Etc. But typically you present yourself as the manly side and the other one is uh, weak, emotional, crying, all that. So, so like womanly. But here they change the strategy saying that both natural so to speak, women and men are on the Russian side and the West is none of that. It's somewhere in between. It's decadent. You cannot even tell who the people are anymore. right? And you say also in the paper that Putin himself doesn't speak about, for example, LGBT people. He speaks more broadly about defending traditional values that we have had for a millennium or whatever. Yes. And what is also interesting uh, and what we did in the study, because it's not only about the language, the rhetorics, but also the images that are then that you can see on TV. And that, I think, is the strategy. So uh, typically Putin is surrounded by young, beautiful women and then speaks as the leader of the nation. So this gender hierarchy doesn't have to be even mentioned because we can see it, right, that the leader always, of course, naturally, so to speak, has to be 
male and then women listen. Some of the details in the paper are fascinating. For example, you say that in Russia's victory parade uh, every year that the male soldiers look very stern and very masculine and the female soldiers, of whom there are a lot fewer, are seen smiling. It seems extremely stage-managed. Yes, absolutely. It's it's like they, you know, they remind me sometimes of um, uh, the I think it's Terminator Four movie where you have this robot female with this like uh, plastered on smile, so that kind of smile. But but they are smiling, and even even when when they are described by the voice that is announcing who will be now on the parade, there is cl- a clear distinction. They always say and these battalions because they are female battalions they will not be fighting they will be in the support or psychological support or translators something like that so even the battlefield itself is is seen as only for males what about gender in ukraine has the war in any way impacted the rights of women or position of women and sexual minorities in ukraine itself Absolutely, which is quite fascinating because you rightly pointed out that if you look, if we had looked at the sociological data before the war, you would see that the societies where the Russian and the Ukrainian were not that different in terms of their attitudes to gender emancipation or LGBT rights. That would be almost the same, slightly more progressive in Ukraine, but only a slight difference. But as a consequence of the war, and again, let's be reminded that we are already talking about the war since 2014, so it has been quite some time already, the society has been shifting quite dramatically. I already mentioned the gay pride, the Istanbul Convention that the Czech Republic is still struggling with politically has been approved, ratified by Ukraine. Women serve in the army much more frequently than, than, than before and much more frequently than in Russia. So there is a number of, of changes. But obviously, how uh, what happens after the war? That's the big question, because typically wars have rather a negative effect on, on women's rights. You also say in your paper that Ukraine has introduced or had already introduced some sexual and gender equalities as part of its association agreement with the European Union. And to Russia, that simply proved that Ukraine was manipulated by the West. Well, yes, yes. And I cannot add anything to that because, you know, anything Ukraine does in line with what the European Union or the West in general sees as progressive will be interpreted in this way. And uh, the association agreements, not only with Ukraine, but also with other countries such as Armenia, contain such clauses, anti-discrimination clauses, for instance, against sexual minorities. So that is happening not only in Ukraine, it's happening everywhere where, where the association agreements exist. But you're right, this is very much used by the Russian propaganda. Sadly, it seems to me the Russians are very good at this stuff. For many years, this kind of information war in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of areas, is working. It is. It is to some extent working. At the same time, uh, it is kind of the, 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 you know, like a weak strategy or substitute strategy, because obviously what, what Russia would want the West to believe or, or people in the West to believe is that the their way of modernization, what, what some scholars call authoritarian modernization, is a more attractive model than the Western one. And obviously, if you ask people what they consider attractive, they will start with economy and how well people live somewhere, right? 
And there, Russia has failed utterly. Nobody in the West, I mean, there are some few exceptions, but nobody really would want to move to Russia. So this is a kind of substitute strategy that, you're right, it works well, but in terms of convincing people that Russia or the Russian model of social development is something that we should emulate in the West, I think on that account they are not successful. No, but they are, I would say, successfully undermining us. That's true. If you look at even, for example, Brexit, Trump, I mean, this is broader now than what we began speaking about, yep. <laughs> but they are, they are changing things in their view That's or from true. their perspective. That's true. Even though I would rather say that, again, this agenda has been politically used by Russia or by Orban in Hungary, but it has not been uh, or was not invented by Russia, right? So again, I would say it's more pragmatic looking at what the points of contention in Western societies are, such as transgender uh, rights, and then using that in the official rhetoric. So you are right, but in the sense of, of Russia having this negative influence, but I think the real problem is the, what you might call, resilience of uh, the Western societies themselves. And Russia plays a negative role, obviously, but I don't think it's the root cause these problems. How much do you think Russia is negatively affecting Czechia in terms of the society and societal right. views? Right. I would say that it's a bit more difficult for Russia than elsewhere because typically the channels lead through conservative religious organizations and obviously in Czechia that's more difficult but there are connections. The strategy is somewhat different because you have to translate you know, secularize the language, so to, not to speak about the Bible or traditional Christian values, but just traditional values. So um, it's more difficult, but it works. It works, and it works surprisingly well. There are some unholy alliances, you might call them, with, with some religious actors or conservative actors in the Czech society who would vehemently uh, reject that claim. But if you look at the language they use, the, the arguments they use, and again, you can even find the financial connections. It's working here as well. Also, the last president of this country said he was physically disgusted by trans people. And it was very kind of uh, noticeable that he chose trans people specifically to attack. Exactly, exactly. And and, and I, th I think in that sense, Czech society then kind of belongs to the Western societies where, where, where the focus moves away from gay people to trans uh, people, obviously for these reasons, because they are an easier target and that, that's the crux of the culture wars at the moment. And that paper by Petr Kratkvil and Mila O'Sullivan is easily available online if you'd like to hear more about what they have to say on this topic. This has been episode 86 of Prague Talk, a podcast from Radio Prague International. If you're new to us and you enjoyed this one, why not check out some of the earlier editions and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. But for now, from me, Ian Willoughby, that's all. Thanks a lot for listening to Prague Talk and talk to you again very soon.